Make Walters your spot before and after the MLS All-Star festivities at Audi Field. Skills Challenge Tuesday night, Arsenal against the MLS Stars on Wednesday. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing and a fly ball, left field toward the line, down toward the corner, and this ball is off the wall and in play. Rounding third is Vargas Hill score, and into second is Joey Manessis. It's an RBI double. Joey Manessis drives in his second run of the day and 48th of the year, and the Nationals have taken the lead here with two out of the top of the eighth inning. It's now Washington five and St. Louis four. The kick of the pitch. Swing a ground ball, base hit, right field. Nationals have the lead. Call will score. Abrams racing for third. Walker's throw is cut off. Abrams in at third with a head first dive as Lane Thomas comes through to give the Nationals the lead on an 0-2 pitch. It's the Nationals 6, St. Louis 5. Harvey's got the sign. Two balls, two strikes, two down. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out and this ball game is over. The Nationals down the Cardinals 7-5 in 10 innings. They take game one in this three-game series, a suspended game. Irvin coming set. 1-1 pitch, swung on, line drive center field. Base hit, fielded on a hop by call. In from third to score is Donovan with the fourth run of the inning. Here's the 2-2. Swing and a long drive to left field. This is way back. Burleson to the warning track, angling on it at the wall. He leaps, and he made the catch. Tagging from third is Chavis. He'll come in to score. And back to first, holding is Thomas. And a ball looked like it might get out of here. Looks like the glove goes over the wall, Dave. He robbed Manessis of a three-run homer. But the Nationals get the tying run. Espino rocks, kicks, and delivers. Swing and a drive to deep left. Back goes Garrett, way back, and it is gone. Goodbye. A line drive just clears the wall and straightaway left field. It's now a five-run lead for the Cardinals. It's St. Louis 9 and Washington 4. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, July 16th. 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Hope that you had a nice all-star break. So much for the Nats having just had that uh, four-day all-star break. They, over these last two days, have spent the equivalent of, it seems like, four days at Bush Stadium. So we have this three-game series at the St. Louis Cardinals. Game one, a 7-5, 10-inning Nats win in a rain-suspended game that uh, started on Friday night, was completed on Saturday afternoon. 
This was a wild game, a game in which the Nats blew a 5-4 eighth inning lead. This was a game also in which the Nats in the top of the fifth scored three runs despite not registering a single hit. And then game two of the series, a 9-6 Nats loss on Saturday night in a game in which the Nats did overcome a 4-0 third inning deficit and in a game for which the start was delayed by rain for an hour and five minutes. The Nats now are 37-55. and We, over these two games, have seen Nats relievers total 12 and a third innings, as uh, just like that, Davey Martinez is back to having a text bullpen. Uh, But we, over these two games, also have seen some good stuff from the Nats offense. A lot to get to, but I tell you, Mark, these first two days of the Nats post-All-Star break portion of the season, not exactly a calm and uh, run-of-the-mill first two days. No, Al, and and the the shame of it is... Everybody shows up in St. Louis on Friday. They're refreshed. They're ready to go. I think Davey was especially excited that for the first time in a long time, he'd go into a whole series and know his pitching staff is well-rested. He could use whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted, no concerns about any of that. And already two games in, now he's had to use everybody up, overextend them. There were guys who weren't available in what may have been a winnable game on uh, Saturday night. And so it's like, They can't even catch a break there. It's like they're already now exhausted and taxed only two days into it because of the combination of the weather forcing essentially a doubleheader and then the fact that the the first game goes extra innings on top of all that. So it really was not the best case scenario for to start the second half of the season. Now, you know, they won one of the two games and they they played well at times there. But I think in a lot of ways, this is a, a little bit of a frustrating start to the second half because it feels like they're behind the eight ball again already only two days in. Yeah, you go from rested to like not rested in a period of, you know, 24, 48 hours. So I certainly get the frustration from the national standpoint. So, you know, a bunch of different things you want to cover with what has happened with the Nats over these two games. But maybe the most significant thing in terms of player availability, especially considering that we are coming up on this MLB trade deadline on August 1st, Jamer Candelario. So he was an at starting third baseman and number three batter in game one of this series. The game that started on Friday night was concluded on Saturday afternoon. Candelario in the top of the first on Friday night struck out swinging on nine pitches for the third out, then left the game due to a right thumb bone bruise that he suffered during a defensive drill on Friday afternoon. Now, you know, it's been a rough last few weeks for Candelario physically. First of all, you may recall this. He actually hurt his left thumb in a game not too long ago, uh, a 5-4-10 inning loss to the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park on July 6th. He also had a knee issue not long ago. I know it was said that Candelario uh, could potentially pinch hit in game two of this series. As you and I have joked many times when you hear that, that almost always means that the guy will not end up pinch hitting. And sure enough, Candelario did not pinch hit in game two. But what's your sense on uh, what we're looking at here with Jamer Candelario? It's still a pretty big question mark, I think, as they go into Sunday morning. And yeah, you're right. There was an opportunity, a big spot in the nightcap of the doubleheader, where if he was available, he would have pinched it. And I asked Davey Martinez about it afterwards. And he says, yes, if he was available, he would have hit for Michael Chavis with the bases loaded in what was a, still a close game that they could have come all the way back with one big swing there. So that tells you something. The thumb is pretty swollen. It's weird. It was a fluke thing. It happened during a defensive drill of ground ball snuck up on him and caught him on the thumb. He thought he could play through it, but if you watched that first at-bat, there were a couple of weird things in it. He took a bunch of pitches to begin the at-bat. Then he squared around to bunt 
which you don't see him do very much. He, he wound up pulling it back because it was a bad pitch. And then he fouled off three straight, and you could see each time he was shaking his hand that it was not comfortable. And then the last swing looked really uncomfortable, and he sort of jogged off the field immediately. So you could tell something wasn't right there. Now, the grand scheme of things, maybe a thumb injury is better than if it was his side or an oblique or his back, which I know a lot of people at first thought it might be. But they got to be careful with this, and you can't just put him out there if he's not ready. But as you point out, we are two weeks away from the trade deadline at this point, and he is their most tradable chip that they have. Now, they're going to say they don't consider that kind of thing and that if he's good to play, he's going to play. You can't tell me in the back of Davey Martinez, in the back of Mike Rizzo's mind, that they're thinking about that and trying to just, above all else, make sure that they're not doing anything that could drastically alter what they might want to do two weeks from now. Well, the Nats third baseman in place of Jamer Candelario has been potentially another trade chip, Ildemaro Vargas. And he has continued to do what he has done for really so much of his time with the Nats. And that is produced when called upon. Vargas in uh, game one of this series, one for four with a single. And Vargas in game two of the series, the game on Saturday night, one for four with a two-run double and a walk. Vargas in an Nats two-run ninth, a two-out two-run double to left field on an 0-2 pitch to cut the Nats deficit to 9-6. So the Nats over these first two games have had some big-time bullpen problems, both in terms of having to use a bunch of guys and in terms of the effectiveness of those guys. But there also have been some good things offensively with the Nats. And I think one of the more uh, emerging items from this series from a Nats standpoint, certainly from the Department of Positives, is C.J. Abrams and the job that this guy is doing as the Nats now regular leadoff batter, the Nats now regular number one batter, he really has become like an on-base machine. This has been so nice to see. And, you know, he's getting on base in a variety of ways. He's stealing bases. And he now has actually shown some pop. Lack of power had been a real thing with Abrams throughout this season. Even in this uh, recent run of being the number one batter, we had not seen much power. But we did see some power on Saturday night. So Abrams in game one of this series, two for five with two leadoff singles. And he went two for two on stolen bases, including a key steal, a three-run fifth in this uh, 7-5, 10-inning win. Abrams, in that inning, got on base via a one-out fielder's choice grounder, stole second base, and it was his steal of second base that drew a throwing error by the Cardinals catcher, Wilson Contreras, and Luis Garcia on the play, stole home for a 3-1 Nats lead. Runner goes from first, pitches high, throw through by Contreras, is offline, gets through the second baseman, Gorman, and in to score on the play, Garcia, and all the way to third is C.J. Abrams, and the Nationals now lead 3-1. to one. That three-run fifth was something. The Cardinals committed three errors, and like I mentioned earlier, the Nats had a three-run fifth despite not registering a single hit in the inning, if you could believe that. But then Abrams in the nightcap, the game on Saturday night, the 9-6 loss, two for four with a solo homer and a single, a two-run third. Abrams had a two-out solo homer to right field on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-2, 408 feet per stat cast. Very encouraging what we're seeing from C.J. Abrams. It is in so many ways, Al. Start with the results. Obviously, those are tremendously positive for him getting on base, hitting the ball with some authority. Like you said, the home run, which came off a lefty. That's a nice thing to see from him doing that. And the stolen bases, he's 13 for his last 13 in stolen bases. And he's had now seven of them in his last six games. So that is a big part of this. And if you get on, 
you can try to take advantage of that speed that he has and uh, turn a single or a walk into a double. So he's doing a really nice job of that. But beyond just the results, watching him play since he took over the leadoff spot at the start of the Rangers series last weekend, he looks like a different guy. He looks energized. He looks motivated at the plate, on the bases, in the field. And, and you can even tell from talking to him that this has been a boost to his confidence. He feels like he has the faith of the team and the manager to put him in that spot. And not to say that he was getting complacent hitting at the bottom of the order, but I think this has been a little bit of a jolt for him and it's bringing out the best in him. And I mean, boy, if he can somehow keep something like this up for a while now, the rest of the season, that is a huge development. We've been wondering all along, is this guy really a top of the order hitter or not? It's far too soon to make any declarations, but it's noticeable, not just the results, but how he has looked out there. With the caveat of small sample size, C.J. Abrams now over five games as the Nats leadoff batter, batting average of 476 on base percentage of 500, a slugging percentage of 619. Not bad. We certainly will take that. So good job by C.J. Abrams. We did get another home run from Alex Call on Saturday. This has been really interesting. The power that Call has displayed since being brought back up from AAA Rochester. So he was an ad starting center fielder in each of these first two games of the series. He in game one as a number nine batter, 0 for 4 with an RBI fielder's choice. He also got caught on an attempted steal of second base, but call in the nightcap, 1 for 3 with a solo homer and a hit by pitch. He was a number eight batter in this game. Call in that two-run third, a one-out solo homer to left center to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-1, 403 feet per stat cast. Uh, speaking of hitting homers, so when we last left you going into the All-Star break, Joey Manessis was on a home run tear, right? He hit four home runs over three games against the Texas Rangers. Well, Manessis on Friday slash Saturday did not homer, but he came close to homering, and he was, again, productive. He has been the Nats' starting designated hitter in each of the first two games of this series. Game one, two for five with an RBI double and an RBI single. The RBI double was big, a one-run eighth, a tie-breaking two-out RBI double to the left field corner on a 1-2 pitch to give the Nats a 5-4 lead. And then Manessis in the night game on Saturday, one for four with a single and an RBI sack fly. So no, he didn't homer, but some big hits for Manessis over these first two games seems to be still in that good place that we saw him in going into the All-Star break. He just missed two homers. You had the double down the line, and then Alec Burleson robbed him of at least a double and possibly a home run on what turned out to be that sack fly. He was a couple inches short of clearing the fence on that one. And then you add that with a really nice two-out RBI opposite field single earlier in the game. And what we have seen, again, small sample, it's only been a few games that this has been going on, but what we have seen here has, I think, really for the first time this season, looked like Joey Manessis from last season. The ability both to come through with opposite field singles, but also to hit the ball hard in the air to the pull side. That's a really good combination if he can keep that up. That's kind of a game changer for him and for a lineup that has sorely needed somebody to do that in the middle of it. These are some really encouraging signs for him. Yeah, Manessis has his OPS for the season up to 732. We talked about C.J. Abrams. His OPS for this season now is at 706. So maybe just maybe we can get some guys into the 700s of uh, OPS with, you know, Lane Thomas and Jamer Candelario having had to carry the offensive load for so much of this Nats season. Speaking of Lane Thomas, 
Now, I think a lot of us wondered, well, geez, he was doing so well in the number one spot. C.J. Abrams now is given that number one spot. What's going to happen with Lane? Is uh, the success of Lane Thomas going to maybe be lessened with him out of that oh-so-comfy number one spot? Well, Lane, as a number two batter, is doing just fine, and he, on Saturday, did just fine in game one of this series at the Cardinals, a 7-5-10 inning win in a two-run tenth, a tie-breaking opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch for a 6-5 Nats lead. And then Lane Thomas in the 9-6 loss on Saturday night, one for four with a double and a walk. And I know that you asked Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference after the uh, rain-suspended game Saturday afternoon about the significance of Lane Thomas going the opposite way with that RBI single in the two-run tenth. Yeah, look, that's not who he has been. He's done a great job of pulling the ball. And if you look at his spray chart, it's almost everything to the pull side. But what you saw there in that at bat, he's facing Jordan Hicks, who's thrown 100 miles an hour. He's down in the count 0-2. And the Cardinals are giving him the entire right side of the infield. They are shaded about as far over as you're allowed to now under MLB's new rules. He took full advantage of that and did exactly what you need to do in the 10th inning of a tie game when you're down in the count. Take what's given to you and take it the other way and take your RBI single and ends up winning the game. I think that was big for him to see that, yes, he can do that. And he talked to us afterwards about understanding when to try to do that. You can't force that issue. You're not going to guide the ball. But he said when you are feeling good at the plate and you're swinging at the right pitches, you can recognize when to do that and when not to. And that was a perfect example down in the count and a wide open infield take what they're giving you. And he very much took it there. And that's a nice sign for him. Yeah. So the Nats are hitting so far in this series, the 7-5-10 inning win. The Nats in that game, seven runs, eight hits, two walks, five for 12 with runners in scoring position. The 9-6 loss in game two of the series, the Nats in that game, six runs, 11 hits, three walks, three for 13 with runners in scoring position. And I mentioned that three-run fifth in game one of this series. That really was something. The Nats scoring three runs despite not registering a single hit. The three runs coming on two walks, two stolen bases, three Cardinals errors, and a wild pitch. I mean, I know that you see that in baseball from time to time, but that inning really was something. It's hard to put up a crooked number without registering a single hit. And to see the Nats do that and to see the sloppiness by the Cardinals in that inning. I mean, look, St. Louis is not having a good season at all. These are two of the three worst teams in the National League in terms of records this season. But boy, that inning was something to watch just from like purely an entertainment standpoint. It was just so bizarre. The Cardinal way is not what it used to be, right? That was, if that's the new Cardinal way, yikes, look out. Look, they obviously took advantage of some bad, bad defense by St. Louis, but they also forced the issue some by running as well as they did. You mentioned that double steal. That's a great example of it. Draw the throw, and then you can end up getting the runner home from third on the back end of the double steal. So that's good stuff there. I really like the approach, and they understand. Look, They know who they are at this point. They're not a home run hitting team. They'll hit occasionally now and then, but they understand they're going to have to do it in other ways. And so if you've got, I mean, look at this way. You're 9-1-2 right now. Alex Call, C.J. Abrams, Lane Thomas. All three guys can steal bases. All can force the issue. If they're on base, use that to your advantage. Try to force the issue. And I think really one of the few times we've seen them do that this year, they were the aggressors. They put the pressure on the Cardinals and took advantage of their sloppy defense. And it absolutely paid off for them. I don't know. I've ever seen a team score three runs without a hit in the entire inning. And that's 
maybe not the way you normally expect to try to score three runs, but the way the Washington Nationals in 2023 are, it's the way you're going to have to score runs sometimes. You do what you have to do in sports and in life. That's just the way that it has to be. Are you looking for tickets to an upcoming event? That's why you should download the GameTime app. Create an account and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. You get cheaper tickets and it helps the podcast a bit. Sounds like a smooth 6-4-3 double play. Again, create an account and redeem the code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Terms apply. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kate Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat's chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfis has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red-hot antitrust, IP litigation, white-collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Hey, NatChat Podcast, here to tell you about Factor Meal Delivery Service. It's a new partnership that our podcast will be able to enjoy, and we think you will too. Now that we're in the thick of summer, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals to support sunny, active days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track reaching your goals. Too busy with summer plans to cook but want to make sure you're eating well? With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. This July, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door. Ready in just two minutes, no prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash natschat50 and use code natschat50 to get 50% off. That's code natschat50 at factormeals.com. Ballpark Village. Here's a swing and a line drive. Fair pass to Diving Smith down the right field line toward the corner for extra bases. Rounding third, Gorman, he will score. Behind him, Herrera trying to score. Runner heading for third, no play there. It's a triple. Two runs batted in for Brendan Donovan. And it's a three-run inning with a crooked number up for the Cardinals. It's St. Louis three and Washington nothing. So this has not been a banner series so far for the Nationals in terms of their starting pitching. Part of that is circumstance, i.e. rain, but part of that is some ineffectiveness. But yet Trevor Williams as the Nats starting pitcher in the 7-5-10 inning win in the rain-suspended game, and he started the portion of the game that was played on Friday night, then of course did not pitch in the resumption of the game on Saturday afternoon. For Williams in this game, one run, two and two-thirds innings. He had five strikeouts in the two and two-thirds innings. He issued a walk and a hit by pitch. Only gave up one hit, 
which was a two-out opposite field solo homer by Lars Nootbaar, one of the great names in MLB, on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the first for a 1-0 Cardinals lead. But, you know, it was disappointing to see Jake Irvin struggle as he did on Saturday night. He'd been so much better since having his turn in the rotation skipped, but he in this game was bad really for the first time in six starts since having that turn in the rotation skipped. Four runs in three innings. All four of the runs came in the bottom of the second. He, over the three innings, gave up six hits, a homer, a triple, and four singles, issued a walk and a hit by pitch. He had three strikeouts, but man, he threw a lot of pitches. Three innings, 79 pitches, although they did consist of a good number of strikes, 51 strikes versus 28 balls. But that four-run Cardinals second, yet Irvin giving up a leadoff homer by Alec Burleson on a bomb to right center field for a one nothing Cardinals lead, 427 feet per stat cast. Irvin gave up a single by Nolan Gorman to right field despite Gorman having been down to the count at 1.12. Irvin issued a one-out hit-by-pitch of the Cardinals' number nine batter, Yvonne Herrera. Irvin gave up a one-out two-run triple by Brendan Donovan toward the right field corner for a 3 nothing Cardinals lead despite Donovan having been down at 1.12. And on that triple was Lane Thomas misplaying the ball out of the right field corner. And then yet Irvin giving up a one out opposite field RBI single by Paul Goldschmidt to right center field for a 4 nothing Cardinals lead. So things really did come apart in that four-run Cardinals second. He had been so much better. It is just one bad outing. So if he's back to being good in the next outing, you know, all can be forgiven. But this was kind of back to the Jake Irvin we saw prior to his turn in the rotation being skipped. Yeah, and that's the high pitch count, which we saw from him when he struggled. Now, some of this was the Cardinals. They fouled off 24 of those 79 pitchers. That's a lot. But it's also on Irvin as well for not locating as well as he could have, not being able to put away hitters when he had the chance with two strikes. Now, it was really hot and muggy. He did apparently deal with like a lot of sweat and was having trouble getting a good grip on the ball. It's unfortunately part of life in the big leagues when you're playing in July in St. Louis and in D.C. and Atlanta and everywhere else they may be. And this is a guy who pitched collegiately at Oklahoma, so you would hope that he understands how to deal with it. But it's something they're going to have to work on and try to figure out how to combat that. The shame of this is you go into the start knowing you would use everybody in the bullpen to get through game one because of the suspension and the fact that it went extra innings and it's a close game, so you're going to use them all. You come into this one, you're saying, okay, we need length from the starter in this game. Jake knew it. He admitted it. And to be knocked out three innings in because you threw 79 pitches is the last thing you're looking for. So you hope it's just one start. You hope the circumstances just kind of threw him off somewhat. But it is the first time in a while we're talking like this about him. And what he had done such a nice job of throughout this process was taking himself out of the equation for thinking about his job security. I don't think one bad start is going to change any of that. And it's not like they got somebody knocking down the door that's immediately ready to come up. But you want to get this back on track again. And if he has another bad start, now those thoughts start creeping through your mind. And all of a sudden, he's not the lock to stay in the rotation. And so with Trevor Williams having an abbreviated outing due to the rain and Jake Irvin having an abbreviated outing due to him just not pitching well, this Nats bullpen is right back to having been worked quite a bit. Like I mentioned earlier, 12 and a third innings for Nationals relievers so far over the first two games of this series. And the results uh, have not been good. The 7-5-10 inning win 
Five Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in seven and a third innings. In the 9-6 loss, three Nats relievers combined to allow five runs in five innings. We in that 10-inning win uh, had Corey Abbott as the Nats pitcher to begin the resumed portion of the game on Saturday afternoon. He allowed three runs in two and a third innings. You know, you had that three-run top of the fifth by the Nats, and then Abbott in the bottom of the fifth allowed three runs. He gave up a one-out double by Paul DeYoung, issued a one-out first pitch hit by pitch at Dylan Carlson, and then gave up a one-out full count three-run homer by Brendan Donovan to right field to tie the game at four. So just like that, that big three-run fifth by the Nats got wiped out. Jordan Weems did toss one and two-thirds scoreless innings. Mason Thompson faced one batter and got one out. And the one out came via a nice defensive play by first baseman Dominic Smith, a terrific over-the-shoulder running catch in shallow right field to retire the Cardinals' number two batter, Paul Goldschmidt, with a runner on second, two outs, and the game tied at four in the bottom of the seventh. Then came the latest adventures of Kyle Finnegan. And, uh, you know, if you are unfamiliar with the work of Kyle Finnegan, what happened with him in game one of this series is like the perfect microcosm of Finnegan. We saw the worst of Finnegan, and we saw the best of Finnegan. He allowed a run in two innings. He, in the bottom of the eighth, gave up a big homer, gave up a game-tying two-out opposite field solo homer by Wilson Contreras to right center field on an 0-2 pitch to tie the game at five. I mean, just brutal, 415 feet per stat cast, too. I mean, that was like a no-doubter, and again, on an 0-2 pitch. But Finnegan, to his credit, did then toss a perfect bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts to preserve the five-all tie. And that ended up proving to be significant with the Nats doing as they did with the two-run top of the 10th. And then Hunter Harvey tossed a perfect bottom of the 10th. What'd you think about what happened with Finnegan in game one? You know, I think both Finnegan and Hunter Harvey, it feels like this is what happens with them. They look really good at times. And when they're not, it's usually one big swing that's a home run. It's very rarely a sustained chip away at you kind of rally with multiple hits, multiple walks, and the inning kind of slowly unraveling in front of your eyes. It's been kind of one big swing. And so I think it does show you that the stuff is very good. But if they miss their location and they leave it over the plate, these are hitters who can then drive that ball 400 feet and change a game on you. So you know, I don't want to read too much into that one home run because I did think he was pretty good. Otherwise, the fact that he came back, that Davey trusted him to come back and that he delivered then with a one, two, three, ninth inning that looked as good as he did in that one. I think that was significant. He was actually lobbying to come back for the 10th <laughs> at that point. Davey said, no, 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 you're, you're fine. We'll go to Harvey. You know, I just think this is kind of who he is. It's kind of who Hunter Harvey is that overall, there's been way more good than bad from them. But the bad is particularly bad because it feels like it's home runs. It's it's a lot happening with one swing. It's not slow, you know, just the inning devolving on you. It's one big swing and all of a sudden that changes the game. Yeah, if you add up Finnegan and Harvey this season, they have combined to allow 11 home runs in just 79 and two-thirds innings. That's too many homers from your top two relievers to have given up that many home runs in you know, that few of an innings count, you know, relatively speaking. I mean, 79 and two-thirds is not a small sample size. But, you know, when you're talking about relievers, like, you know, if a starter gave up 11 homers in less than 80 innings of work, you'd say, you know, that, that's not good. Like, that's a lot of homers for a pitcher. And these are important home runs when you're pitching late in games, as they are. Yeah, right. I mean, these are many times high leverage spots, no doubt. 
And then uh, just to close the book on the bullpen, the 9-6 loss on Saturday night. Like I said, three Nats relievers, five runs in five innings. Amos Willingham, a run in one and two-thirds innings. A real problem was Jose A. Ferrer. He officially allowed two runs in a third of an inning. He was a mess in what ended up being a three-run fifth for the Cardinals. Faced five batters. Got just one out. And then our guy, Paolo Espino, he is back. Uh, Who knows for how long here, but he pitched on Saturday night. Two runs in three innings. You know, it seems like Paolo does not do his best in these Saturday night games. Remember, he had that big start against the Dodgers a few years ago. Did not go so well on a Saturday night. And uh, here we had Paolo on this Saturday night having some issues. But the Nats on Friday morning announced that they had placed Patrick Corbin on the uh, paternity list and had recalled uh, Paolo Espino from AAA Rochester. So yeah, I mean, a lot of pitchers have been used. You know, the Nats do have an off day coming up on Thursday. So it's not like, you know, this is one of these stretches of like two weeks without an off day. But, you know, you have game three of this series to get through. Then you have a three games set at the Chicago Cubs to get through. And already a lot has been asked of this team. Had the Nats done better on Saturday night, who from game one might have been able to pitch in game two? I guess Mason Thompson. He only faced one batter. But like Hunter Harvey, could he have pitched in game two or you don't think so? I didn't sound like it. So I asked Davey, like if the score was a little different later in the game, would you have come back with anybody from the first game? And he mentioned that Thompson was the one that if it was tied late in the game, he probably would have been the one. Now, I don't know if that means full-fledged save situation or if he would have gone back to Hunter Harvey. One thing about Harvey, and I don't have much on this, but his velocity was down in that one inning he threw a couple miles an hour and get a chance to check on it after the game. It's something I'm going to try to look into on Sunday. Hopefully it's nothing you would hate to see anything go wrong with him physically after he's done such a nice job of staying healthy for the first time in his career. But it kind of got lost in that because it was a quick one, two, three inning. It was effective, but his velocity was several, like two to three miles an hour below its average. And I hope there's nothing going on there, but I wonder if that also maybe would have played into some decision about whether or not to bring him back. You know, if you're in a pennant race, a different situation, maybe you're willing to push the envelope there. But in addition to the fact that they're not in pennant race, obviously, you've got several guys who've had past arm injuries. And so are you going to do that to them on the first weekend out of the All-Star break and risk any long-term effects? And as well, since we're talking about the trade deadline, if there's any chance that any of those guys might be on the block come here at the end of the month, you certainly don't want to do anything right now that could hurt them. Yeah, absolutely not. I do want to make mention of this before we call it a show. Baseball America on Friday morning came out with the outlet's updated top 100 prospects list off the 2023 MLB draft. The Nats had three top 100 prospects, including two of the top five prospects in baseball. We wondered where might Dylan Cruz land? In the next installment of the top 100 prospects list, given how highly regarded Dylan Cruz is, the man who the Nats took with the number two overall pick in the 2023 MLB draft. And sure enough, outfielder Dylan Cruz, per the Baseball America top 100 prospects list that came out on Friday morning, is the number four prospect in baseball. Two spots ahead of pitcher Paul Skeens, in case you are curious. But Dylan Cruz is at number four. Outfielder James Wood is is at number five. So how about that? Two of the top five prospects in the sport are Nats outfielders, also making the list third baseman slash shortstop Brady House, the number 94 prospect in baseball. It is telling that outfielders Elijah Green and Robert Hassel III are not on this top 100 list. You know, I I looked up, or I, I tried looking up, is this the first time that the Nats have ever had two top five prospects at once? 
And it's not easy to find all of the data on these top 100 prospects lists going back. If you go to baseball reference, though, and you look at players' minor league pages, you can see where those guys were ranked as prospects going into seasons, not during seasons, but going into seasons. And as best as I can tell, at least if you go by that, this is the first time that the Nats have had two top five prospects at once, at least per that data. But, you know, just in thinking about it, like you would think, okay, well, Juan Soto and Victor Robles. Well, Juan Soto, as best as I can tell, was never like a top five prospect. Victor Robles was, but Soto actually wasn't. So I thought, okay, well, maybe Steven Strasburg, Bryce Harper. Well, but if you do the timeline thing, Harper was drafted in June 2010. By then, Strasburg had already made his major league debut. Now, I guess technically, Strasburg may have still been considered a prospect in June 2010. So maybe somewhere in there, like in June 2010, if there was an in-season prospects list, I don't even know if outlets were doing in-season prospects lists at that time, but maybe then Strasburg and Harper. But otherwise, no. And look, if you have to go back to 2010, I think that's significant in and of itself. So boy, that is great to see that the Nats, as things stand right now, per an outlet like Baseball America, have two of the top five prospects in the sport and Dylan Cruz and James Wood. Yeah. So Harper was drafted literally the day before Strasburg debuted. They were back-to-back days. Now, again, I don't remember Baseball America doing like an updated list, but if in theory they did a immediate post-draft updated prospects list, that probably would have qualified because Strasburg would still count. A year later when they drafted Anthony Rendon in 2011, Bryce was still in the minors at that point. So maybe those two would have fallen there. But yeah, and this is a rare thing to have, and it's a very nice thing to have. Now, this organization has not lacked for elite prospects. Where they haven't done as well is in the bottom half of that top 100 or even top 200 prospects who end up becoming good quality big leaguers. So in some ways, I think that stuff is more important. I think everybody understands Dylan Cruz, barring any health issues, is going to be a very good player. And and it seems like James Wood is going to be the same. So that's great. They need more star power, obviously, here. I'm very interested now to see, though, what can they make of second tier prospects? Can Brady House, Elijah Green, Robert Hassel III, even the third baseman from Miami, they just drafted Yo-Yo. Can he work his way up into that kind of thing where you're not being considered one of the top prospects in baseball, but you are good enough to work your way through the system, reach the big leagues, and stick there as a good quality player. One other note on all that, I thought it was interesting for whatever it's worth. On this latest ranking, you had Cruz at four, Wood at five, and Paul Skeens at six. So Baseball America is saying we think Dylan Cruz is slightly better than Paul Skeens. That's going to be the great debate now for the next decade as we watch both those careers play out. And one of the guys ahead of Cruz and Wood was Ellie De La Cruz, who's going to lose prospect status very soon. So in essence, the Nats have two of the top four prospects in baseball per Baseball America. You can always email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We got a good question from our guy, Jonathan, writes, Jonathan, I have read that since the Nats participated in the draft lottery last year, they can't pick higher than 10th next year. But is that only if they had the worst record? I've also heard that the rule only applies to large market teams. Any help explaining would be much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, so the new CBA makes things ultra complicated with the draft and the draft lottery and what you can and can't do. Here's the bottom line. The Nationals are ineligible to land a top 10 pick in the 2024 MLB draft due to MLB's revenue sharing plan and their market size. The highest that the Nats can pick in the 2024 draft 
is 10th. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of conversation about this, that MLB has almost gone too far in the other direction of like being overly punitive to bad teams and to teams that uh, are not doing well and are rebuilding. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this draft stuff goes because, you know, we've gone from, yeah, if you're really bad, you can get, you know, a top two or top three pick in each of however many consecutive drafts. On the other hand, though, is it really right that you pick as high as 10th? You know, if you're a, a really bad team of having had, say, the number two overall pick in a year. So, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. But that is worth pointing out that, you know, if you're worried about, well, the Nats, you know, it's better if they lose and we don't want them to win. Well, they can't pick higher than 10th in the 2024 draft. So keep that in mind as this season goes on. Right. It does not matter what their record ends up this year. They're just not going to be able to be in the running for one of those top picks. The thought behind this is you don't want to have the same teams every year tanking or or whether it's intentional or not and being in that position where they're always going for a top, you know, two or three pick. The problem is I think everybody would acknowledge that baseball can be cyclical and that it's okay for a franchise like the Nationals who won a World Series and then got to a point that they decided that we have to tear it down. Now you're going to rebuild. I think it's okay to have a couple of years there where you're in that position as long as you're then getting better and spending money and fielding a competitive team a few years after that. You just don't want it to be the same team year after year. So it's a little complicated. Like you said, the revenue sharing is a a strange part of it, whether you're big market or not. I don't love this. I know the Nats are probably frustrated that this would happen to them at this time, but it is true. They cannot pick better than 10th. And so don't be worried about what their record is compared to the Royals or the A's or Anybody else at the bottom of the pile, it's not going to make a difference in the end. What's funny, too, of course, is that if you look at MLB drafts, there often isn't that much of a difference between picking like 10th and 2nd. I mean, good players are all over the place in MLB drafts. I mean, every draft is an inexact science, but especially the baseball draft, because you're talking about, you know, high school players and college players, all of whom are at least, what, a year, two years, three years away from making the majors. So it often doesn't matter that much where you're picking in a first round, but clearly you would rather have, you know, a top two or top three pick as opposed to, say, uh, the number 10 pick. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. And you can email the show NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the program. We'd love to have you on board. Contact Tim Shover. See what we can do for you. NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website as well. NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 and the fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the music of the Nats Chat Podcast. Check out his site, timnewmark.com. Nats Chat is on the radio Sunday mornings, 11 to 12 on ESPN Richmond, which is 106.1 FM in the Richmond, Virginia area and ESPNRichmond.com online. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Carter Young, the shortstop, swings at the first and sends this one towards the gap. Diving grab by Dylan Cruz. He saved what would have been a double, should have been a second and third situation, but Dylan Cruz comes up.